This is The Art of Charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The Art of Charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some great content and free products and books that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. The show's about you. We're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. And if you're new to the show, but you want to know more about what we teach here at the Art of Charm live programs here in LA, check out the toolbox at theartofcharm.com slash toolbox. That's where you'll get the fundamentals such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, dating, attraction, business, networking, negotiation, relationship management. I could go on for days, but all that stuff we wish we'd learned and mastered years ago is covered there. And we've got our live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California, Details at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp or give us a call here in the office at 888-413-7177 or you can email me jordan at theartofcharm.com. I do read everything and I'm looking forward to meeting all of you here at The Art of Charm. Today we're talking with Jeff Thompson. This is a heavy episode. If you're not in the mood for some spirituality and deeper stuff, switch to another episode and come back to this one later. We're going to talk about cutting or not cutting negative people out of your life, how to do it, fear, depression, and violence and changing our stories in life so that we can serve others better. So enjoy this one with Jeff Thompson. You've gone through a pretty interesting process. You're a former doorman, you're a martial arts expert, self-defense instructor, but also you're well-rounded in that you've written films and 40 books and plays and things like that. Those things don't always slash ever really go together, right? So give no. us a little bit of background because Rarely do you find somebody who's got that combination, and the story of how you got there is the is the neat of this. Yeah. Well, I was working in factories till I was 32. I was a kid, uh, a working-class kid in England, Coventry. I always aspired to be a writer, but I didn't have the belief that that was possible. So until the age of 32, I was still sweeping floors in factories. Probably at the age of about 25, 26, I had a bit of a breakdown a very deep depression, and living under the dominion of fears, fears of change, fears of no change, fears of living an amazing life, fears of living a boring life, fears of frightened to go up, frightened to go down, frightened to stay where I am, frightened to live at times. To have this kind of breakdown, this depression, and I just thought, I've had enough of this. I'm tired of living under the dominion of these fears. So I wrote down the fear period. I wrote down all the things I was afraid of on this fear pyramid, least fear at the bottom, worst fear at the top, and I systematically started to confront the things I was afraid of because I was tired of living in a job that was beneath me, you know, living in a small house, in a bad marriage, on a rough street, living well within my means because there was a, this kind of astral wall of fear, this invisible wall of fear all around me. Every time I try to come to the periphery of this fear, I just kind of end up going into depression. So I decided to confront everything, everything I was afraid of. So I wrote it down in the fear and started to systematically confront things one thing at a time. 
you know, you suffered from depression, you were angry. What were you afraid of and what led to the depression in the first place? I think I had this aspiration. I wanted to do something. I wanted to be something. I wanted to live on the dangerous edge. Okay. I wanted to experience life. But my culture, my perceptions, my cognitions were limiting. They didn't believe that was possible. I could see there was stuff out there. I could see that other people were doing things, but I couldn't do it. I didn't know anybody within my cultural setting that had actually done any of these things. I didn't know anyone that had written a book. I didn't know anybody that had broken out of working class life. So these social mores were very strong. So I think I had the aspiration to move forward, but was afraid to move forward, and it created a logjam. So I was root-bound. This is what created the, the depressions and the anxieties. Because I, de- I never actually did anything with the creative energy. I'd build the energy up, or I can do stuff, but I was too afraid to challenge my own beliefs. I was too afraid to challenge my family beliefs, my social beliefs, the cultural beliefs. I was too afraid. I, I was inspired, but I just couldn't break through these old beliefs. These old beliefs were terrifying for me. So every time I came to the edge of them, I found myself backing back into the centre and going into a depression. This was kind of substantiated by the people around me who were also afraid. My first wife, my friends, my family. If you wanted to do something, you wanted to do something aspirational, they were like, what's wrong with you? Why can't you be grateful with what you've got? Don't be greedy. You know, This is a job for life. Jobs like this don't grow on trees. Who do you think you are? So accused of being pretentious and even attacked for wanting to, to improve. Even when I got my first book published, at the age of 32, even when I got my first book published, I said to one of my very close friends, I think I could do something with this. I think I could make something. I think I could become a writer. And he scoffed at me. And he said, listen, you've had a bit of luck getting one book done, but don't get above yourself. I remember thinking, yeah, he's right, he's right. I shouldn't get above myself. Who do I think I am? And I thought, no, no, I've got proof. I have practical proof that it's possible to do something different, to do something extraordinary. So I completely destroyed that old reality over a period of time. I completely dissolved it. And I literally, this isn't a metaphor, I literally created a new reality. To do that, I had to be prepared to let go of everything in the old reality. And most of it I did. I ended up divorced from my first wife. Most of the friends I had then uh, are not the friends I have now. It's not that I left them behind. I just didn't choose to come with me. So this fear of breaking out of old realities is very real for people. We get this question a lot at AOC as well, because a lot of people, they say like, well, you know, I want to learn how to be better with people in business and network and create connections and things like that. So I want to come and learn from you. But my friends think it's stupid. And, you know, certain people in my life are negative. And I even get emails from people that say, I understand, you know, at Art of Charm, you talk about cutting out negative people and things like that from your life. What if it's your wife or what if it's your business partner or your brother or even members of your family? And that can be really tough for people because obviously it's really hard to cut certain people out of your life. It's not like, oh, my neighbor is such a jerk. I got my book published and he said, don't get above yourself. It's like, what if your wife says that? Yeah, you that's know? very true. And that's why it's so difficult. I don't know if you've ever read the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, it's one of the Hindu texts, but it is purely about... Uh, Prince Arjuna going into battle to kill old perceptions. He has to be prepared to kill the beliefs and the teachings of his family and friends and leave them behind if necessary to access his kingdom. So to access 
his potential or to access his talent, he has to be prepared to go to war with everything he's been taught. And that includes what he's been taught by his teachers, by his friends, by his family. Um, it's a great metaphor for overcoming all of these social issues. What I always say to people is no one gets left behind, but not everybody will choose to come with you. We have a dharma. We have something we're meant to do. I found that. I know what that is. I go out, I tell stories, I teach people to create new realities by telling better stories, by dissolving old stories, by telling new stories and believing new stories. But that means that some of the people in the old story won't make it forward. So I don't concentrate on leaving them or, or taking them with me. I just concentrate on contraction. I get rid of any belief in me that it's not possible. As I contract that, some people fall away, some people fall in, some people fall away attacking, some people convert and come with you. If the people love you and they are brave and they are invested in your dharma and what you're meant to do, they will come with you and support you. But you have to be prepared to leave everybody behind. And you have to dissolve all these old beliefs. You have to go to war with these old beliefs because these old beliefs, these old fears are standing between you and your dharma. They're standing between you and your potential. You run away and you're scared and you don't follow your dharma. You give them permission to run away and be scared. We have a 100 billion cells in our body. And if we believe fear, we give every one of those 100 billion cells, which are microcosms of us, we give every one of them permission to be afraid. If we run away, every part of this uh, galaxy of cells is filled with fear. So we have to be prepared to lose everybody. But from my experience, if we are fully certain and we fully commit and we move forward, we don't lose the most important people with us. The change is normally gradual anyway. It's a gradual change and people adjust. But if people don't stay with you, they weren't meant to be with you. Our only duty is to follow our dharma, our, this fingerprint that we have, this unique path that we're set out to do. And that's what I've done. I'm a creator of realities. And that's, that's literal. It's not, again, it's not a metaphor. Well, at least this is what I'm hearing. It's move forward rather than focusing on cutting people out of your life. Because mm. a lot of times I think people, when they hear like, oh, you got to cut negative people out of your life, they hear things like, oh, well, I came back from this experience and all my friends who don't think it's the best thing in the world, I can't be friends with them anymore. And it's like, well, no. Oh, well, I wrote a book and some of my friends are a little bit jealous, so I can't talk to them ever again. And it's not necessarily like that, right? Like you can continue to say you're building a business or something like that or becoming a, a writer or working on things like that and you have your success and some of your friends are a little jealous. Yeah, maybe you don't involve them in those conversations anymore. It doesn't mean you can't see them anymore. It doesn't mean you can't hang out with them anymore, but you keep working on yourself and the people who just can't take that, who, who can't see the good in that, who won't see the good in that and won't be there for you to support you at all, they'll eventually just sort of fade away, right? They're not, go they, they'll be gone. You don't have to surgically remove them. That's their choice, Jordan. When you bang your nail on something, you know, and it turns purple a little bit and you're like, damn, you know, you can't dig that out. You just wait till the nail grows out and, and then it's gone. You create support for the people around you. You try and encourage them to move forward with you. But there comes a time where if they won't move forward with you or if they do hold you back, that you are just in different frequencies. You're not speaking the same language. And as we aim for success, we create a higher altitude. The air is thin. I mean, it is very thin, you know, when we start ascending. 
So we have to be prepared to let people go. But again, it's their choice, not your choice. You know, I don't ever deliberately cut people out of my life. I just make my life so tight and I set my consciousness so high that people either fall in and move forward with me and they're very welcome or they fall away. But I, never, I don't actually fall out with people. But it, one of the big things I've found with success and with ascension is that, you know, the, it does create a lot of jealousy. And a lot of the people closest to you do fall away and a lot of them fall away attacking because they can't cope with you opening the door to this new potential because it makes them realize they're not doing it themselves. So rather than just kind of say, well done and good luck, that a lot of them, you know, will become antagonistic towards you. That's just the nature of it. We are going to break a few eggs when we make this omelet. That's inevitable. Not all of them. We do keep some friends. And, you know, I've been with my wife now for 26 years. As I've grown, she's grown. Sometimes I'm ahead of her. Sometimes she's ahead of me. And we keep up with each other. But we can't really concern ourselves with that. All we can concern ourselves with is our own dharma, our own purpose. And we must aim for that at all costs. And then when we do that, we give everybody around us permission to do exactly the same. And it is tough. There's no doubt about it. You know, there, there are casualties. There are always casualties, but it will be their choice. It's not like you're hacking away at them, you know, and cutting them out. It's their choice to come with you or not to come with you. And that's why I always say to people, if I get criticism, I'll just say, I don't close the door. I don't open the door. But it is a personal journey and it is often a lonely journey because most people do not choose to come with you sort of ironically slash coincidentally, it's based on fear as well. Always. It's based on fear. It's based on limiting beliefs. It's based on old patterns, old cognitions. Our reality is based on beliefs. It's based on stories. If our new story doesn't correspond with our old story. Some people in the old story will want to stay there. I, I went into a church the other day. I meditate before I mentor people. And the whole left-hand side of the church is filled with down and outs. The church lets them sleep there. And I look at them every time I go in there, and it inspires me because I'm thinking, these kids are in this church living rough because they've heard the wrong story. They've believed the wrong story. And they've repeated the, the wrong story and lived the wrong story so vocally and actually millions of times. They've created this reality where they most of the time they just sleep and then unfortunately die it, that's just about story story is so powerful and then i go and work with somebody in mayfair who's become a captain of industry because he's gone out to learn a new story a more powerful story he's dissolved the old story he's broke the old story down and as an alchemist he's recreated that primal seminal energy and created a new story story is so powerful i want to help people to recognize where their old story is keeping them in a prison and show them how to dissolve that and then help them to create a new story by showing them the proof. If I show them that I've dissolved a fearful story and created an aspirational story, I can show them the proof of that. Like I say, it's possible for you because I'm not different to you. We're all the same. Sure. Story is really powerful. And you can't make the people around you change their story. All you can do to inspire them and encourage them is to fully surrender to your story, create that reality, and then welcome them if they come with you. If they don't, they don't. But again, we have to be really courageous. We have to be really brave. 
I don't think two people can go through at the same time. I think you can go through and create an opening other people will follow. It doesn't ask a lot of people, it asks everything of people. That's how the universe works. It works with certainty. If we are certain, the universe responds. If we are not certain, then nothing happens and it recedes. They call this the parable of the talent. The talent is seen as the soul or the seminal energy, the breath we create from that place. And, and our dharma is to go out and invest that and create from that. I'm very excited about creating. And I don't need proof. I've got proof. I'm just trying to improve what I'm doing. Sure. What was the process behind the fear pyramid, the thing you, you touched on in the beginning? You had the fear pyramid fear of physical confrontation being at the top. What was yeah. the process behind changing from being afraid of violence to this martial arts expert? I mean, it almost sounds like that was based on fear you wanted to control the violence. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's, the truth is that fear is illusory. But if we believe it, we create prisons around ourselves. You might not be able to see the walls, but these prisons are very real. And some people will kill themselves rather than challenge these Fears. My idea is that if I could confront the things I'm afraid of and overcome these fears, then I could live the life I wanted to live. What I found was that from a distance, the fears were like three-dimensional monsters. As I got closer, they became two-dimensional cartoons. When I fully embraced these fears, when I intercoursed with these fears, they had no existence at all. So fear is an illusion, but it's strong enough for people to live and die over if they believe them. So the idea is that we come face to face, nose to nose, intercourse with the fear until the fear is completely dissolved because it has no reality. But if we engage it, if we identify with, with the fear, it has, has a complete reality and it has a reality that will, will keep us imprisoned. So for me, initially, it was, just think, it was just a feeling that I could get rid of everything I was afraid of. When I started to do it, I realized that as I got closer to the fears, it didn't actually exist only because I kept a distance from them mm -hmm. and I fed them with my attention. I fed them with my identification. Sure, yeah. yeah. The interesting thing for me was that the surface fears, you know, like a fear of dentists or a fear of spiders or a fear of martial arts competitions, I thought they were my big fears. But once I started to write those fears down, I recognized that they were just camouflage over deeper fears. So really, I was afraid of my wife, my first wife. And I also realized I was afraid of my mother. I was afraid of my mum withdrawing love. I was afraid of the primal fear, they say, it's, been, it's our fear of being abandoned by our very source. You might call this God or you might call it consciousness, but we're afraid of being abandoned by our primal source. So I started to discover deeper fears. And I realized that none of them actually existed outside of me. And I realized the ultimate fear for me wasn't a fear of winning or losing, change or success or failure. The fear was I was afraid of the feelings that it evoked. So I started to develop a desensitization to the feelings. And it's just biological. We get a feeling of adrenaline. We engage it. We identify with it. And it becomes a fully grown fear. And we give it existence in our life as a monster. And then it curtails the way we live. So I recognized that if I could overcome my fear of the feelings by becoming desensitized to the feelings, by placing myself in pressured situations that evoke the feelings, if I could master the feelings, then I could overcome anything. 
And that became the process by which I overcame my initial fear pyramid. I overcame the fear of my first wife. I overcame the fear of my mother. And these might not sound like big fears. I've seen kids, I've worked with kids, and I've seen kids throw themselves under a train rather than confront an issue with their mother or an issue with their father. These are very primal fears. So I developed desensitization. Something Masashi says, if we master one thing, we master all things. I was able to take that, that method of confrontation, desensitization, and take it into other areas. So I had a, I didn't realize I had a fear of writing. I wanted to write, but I was afraid of judgment. I was afraid of judgment because there was fear. The fear was fear itself, fear of adrenaline. So I started to dare myself to write books, dare myself to write controversial books. I dared myself to have a public platform as a martial artist. I dared myself to challenge the social mores of martial arts. And I started to talk about the reality of combat, what worked and what didn't work, and about you know how the martial arts was was kind of in a way a big lie because everyone was talking about stuff that would work that was like a movie that would never work in a month of Sunday. So I started to go out there and I started to risk being criticised, and if it created a drone, then I would use the same process of observing the fear without identification, observing the fear without engagement and then dissolving the fear and if i've got that energy using that seminal energy to create something so i started to tip into alchemy and started to use any energy any energy and every energy uh, to create someone could say something to me and trigger adrenaline i could go and write an article about it and transmute that feeling into an article and sell it for 500 pounds so it was literally alchemy so I started to work with the feelings and doing stuff with the feelings and thinking wherever there's fear, wherever there's a red light, that's a green light for me. That's where I needed to go. So that was my period of shadow hunting. I started to hunt down the places I was afraid. And always, without exception, the fear existed in me. It did not exist in the world. And when I went to the place, like when I stood on the nightclub door, in thousands of violent situations, in hundreds of fights personally, uh, the biggest revelation I got was, first of all, what worked was very small. Uh, there was a, a real kind of essence, a real kind of um, a raw practicality to the martial arts that I was able to find, and I started to teach that on the world stage. But also I realized, that, and this was the most exciting thing, with my powerful beliefs that the world was dangerous and with my powerful imagination, my unrestrained imagination, I created thousands of fights, nightclubs, pubs, in the car, fights at weddings, fights at funerals, everywhere I went. Back to the show. Did you say fights at funerals? Yeah, say so there's a funeral of a doorman, you look across the thing and there's a guy there that you had a fight with two nights before it, um, in a nightclub and he wants to fight again. So you, wherever you went, you ended up fighting because it was in you. I said to my wife, isn't Coventry violence everywhere I go? There's fighting. She said, it's a, there's a common denominator, Jeff. It's everywhere you go. It was very exciting. So I thought, I am creating this accidentally. I'm creating monsters. I'm forgetting that I've created them. Um, and then I'm saying, isn't the world full of monsters? And they go out to fight them. So I realized that whole reality as a nightclub doorman. And if you wanted to read it, have a look at Watch My Back. That whole reality was created purely from 
my imagination, from my own essence. I created that with seminal energy. Most of the pubs and clubs I worked in don't even exist anymore, George. They're right. actually, they've literally dissolved. The Hindus say we create, we maintain, we dissolve our reality. The key is to be able to do it deliberately. And that's, that's the process. I mean, now, as a younger man, I created all these realities accidentally. Sure. Didn't know I've created it. I've just learned to see the process and create them deliberately. So where you are with your people, you're trying to take them out and say, look, you can create a better reality and this is how you do it. So the reality I create now is based on, you know, on a, it's based on the foundation of integrity and virtue. I'm trying to teach people raw consciousness to get rid of anything that isn't essential, like the Jeep, just enough essential parts to show them how to be prolific in the world from a place of virtue, from a literal place of love, just following the things we love doing. Uh, and it's very possible, you know, I'm working with a few people that are very successful with it. Coming from a place where you're getting in fights at funerals. <laughs> weddings, I mean, funerals, funerals and weddings. Christmas. That's insanity. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very violent city, but I had a very insecure mindset. I developed quite a lot of physical tools in the martial arts, but I was still very insecure. I wasn't challenging that. And I had a, a powerful but an unrestrained imagination. But I mean, I remember being at a, a christening and somebody kicked off and I ended up headbutting him and knocking him down two flights of steel stairs. And then people buying me a drink and patting me on the back because I sorted this problem out. But that was everywhere I went. That once I realized it was me, it wasn't the world that was at fault, it was me. It wasn't the cinema screen, it was the projector. I came back and I started to work heavily on me, solely on me, and, and I was able to clean that. So what I create in my life now is conversations like this. This is what I would call a conversation I would call pure function. It's just a pure exchange of energy without any agenda. I create situations like this every day in my life in cafes, with cups of tea, uh, with a cake. I work and I walk with, you know, people I love and admire, some of my heroes. You know, I, I create this every single day. My whole life is based around creating stories, telling stories, sharing stories in beautiful places. I've created that, but I've also done the opposite. I've created the ninth circle of the inferno just by not challenging my old belief. It's very exciting that. We have the ability to challenge old beliefs and create new beliefs. And, it, and it, as you said, I mean, conceptually it's simple, but it's not easy to do because, you know, if we, if we change anything, of course, we change everything. If I change me, then I'm the projector of my reality. I'm the reality maker. And of course, if I change me, then it's going to have an effect on my wife, on my children, on my friends, on the people I work with. I mean, you don't have to change much. If you just stop drinking alcohol, it's social suicide. Yeah, sure. You lose 75% of your friends straight away. But that's okay because it's, if it's what you really want to do and you really want to contract in order to expand, then it's good to let things go. It's good to lose things. But we come back to the same thing. That's their choice, not yours. Now, what was the root of the fear? Because everybody has, well... Theoretically, everyone has a mother that they could be afraid of losing. Every, a lot of people have wives they could be afraid of losing their love from. What was the root of your fear? How come you developed a lot of this crazy fear that turned into wild violence and other people don't? I, when I was 11, I was sexually abused by a teacher that I idolized. I was groomed and abused. 
And what that did is it set a belief in me that the world could not be trusted. You can't trust anybody, not even the people you love, especially the people you love. After this abuse, people don't talk about this very often, but after you've been abused, it sets this, like a possession, like a negative perception. Uh, so you're possessed by a belief and a perception. So you end up abusing yourself. You end up physically abusing yourself, sexually abusing yourself. So when people abuse you, it's a possession. And that's why when we talk about forgiveness, we're talking about exorcism. We're talking about exercising, you know, beliefs that have been implanted in you. So I was abused by this guy that I idolized and loved. At the time, I felt as though I was abandoned by him. My parents didn't do anything about it. I didn't tell them straight away, but they didn't do anything. So I felt abandoned by them. And of course, I was brought up a Christian. So I also felt abandoned by God, felt abandoned by my source. From this kind of soft, sensitive 11-year-old, I grew up to be a big lump. I was 16 stone. I'm an eighth dan in karate, but I was a fifth dan at the time when I was fighting. I covered myself in war paint, tattoos. I layered myself with muscle. So I became this fighting machine. I took away all the prettiness. I was a pretty boy. I got a broken nose, two cauliflower ears. I mean, you can't take away the kindness from my eyes, but I did everything I could to make myself unattractive and to make myself a killer machine. That was all based on an unconscious perception that the world could not be trusted. That's how powerful perception is. Only by writing about it, only by bringing it out to light and putting these chaotic energy into a narrative that I could understand was I able to clean myself. And that took me quite a few years. So I wrote some very challenging, very daring stage plays and films about what had happened to me and what I'd done to myself as a consequence, how I'd physically abused myself, how I'd sexually abused myself, how I'd been physically violent to other people as a nightclub doorman. As a direct displacement, I wrote about it. I wrote about everything, all the shame, all the anger, all the rage, all the guilt, all the dissonance. I wrote everything down. I spared nothing. And that's what cleaned me. Once I was cleaned, I was able to literally transform myself into whatever I wanted to transform myself into, because it's up to me then. What new perceptions do I want to put on the backboard? What new programs do I want to put in? Well, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a martial arts teacher of some repute. I wanted to live with a girl that I could wake up in the morning and feel content with. You know, I wanted to be free in the world. I wanted to be able to get up in the morning and go, okay, which way do I turn today? Do I turn there? Do I turn right? Do I move forward? And that's what I've created. But only, first of all, by uh, in the Christian Bible, they call the demons the divide. So I got rid of the divide itself, and the divide itself was placed in me by this guy that abused me. So I was able to go back and examine that and do some cognitive behavioral therapy on myself, literally exercise old perceptions. A demon is a divide, and when we forgive people, we exercise them, we exercise these old perceptions. So I was able to do that by writing about it, by talking about it, by doing presentations, by being honest about it. This is what I call expansion through contraction. I was able to contract all of those old perceptions and beliefs and uh, expand with new perceptions and new beliefs and then put that to the test in the world. And you know that's what enabled me to write all the books, write all the films, win the BAFTA, get stuff published, I think we're in 21 languages now or something like that, enabled me to stand in front of people, enabled me to 
with my essence, with my truth, enabled me to go and work with some of the highest people in our society and some of the lowest people. One day I could be talking to a guy that's turning over eight or nine or ten figures, and the next day I could be talking to 40 people that have all murdered. They were in a prison. Either way, these people are changing lives, either by creating positive realities or by taking lives. So I'm able to talk to them with my essence and get through. Truth is penetrative. When you get truth and you speak truth and you are truth, you can hear a pin drop in the room. So I, I went out and started, as part of my own cleaning process and as part of my dharma, I went out and started to talk to anybody and everybody, you know, like I said, from Mayfair to Buckingham Palace to, to prisons to working with people in the National Health Service, just ordinary guys, martial artists. I was even invited over to Las Vegas to teach this stuff for Chuck Norris. Twice he invited me over. <laughs> cool. Because even from across the world, you can see essence, you can see truth. And the truth might literally be looking at a martial art and say, you know what, I put this under pressure and the blocking and countering doesn't work and the grappling is suicide. It's beautiful, but it's suicide outside the nightclub. But what works is preemption, preemption and artifice. It's really simple. You could write it on the back of a stamp and it's so effective. It's so potent that you don't even want to do it. It's too dangerous. And you just tell the truth. You tell what you see. What you see has come from actual experience, repeatable experience. Then I tried to find that in business. What's the secret to business? What's the secret to business? What's the secret to health? What's the essence to relationship? What's the essence of making money? You know, all of these different areas that people struggle with. They struggle with health. They struggle with relationships. They struggle with making money because they don't understand it. So you start looking at, if I can find the essence in combat, where it's life and death, I can find the essence in health. I can find the essence in relationship. I can find the essence in business. I'm good in business without even trying because I, I just want to serve people. When I'm standing in front of people, sub-vocally, I'm just saying, I want to serve this person. Please show me how to serve them. Please show me how I can serve this person. And they know that. They can feel that congruence. Whoever I'm talking to, wherever I am with my relationship with my wife, we have a relationship based on pure function. There's no agenda. I just want to do things for her. She just wants to do things for me. And we are so happy and so blissful. It hurts. you know. And I'm trying to find that with every single interaction, whether I'm throwing a punch, which is an exchange of energy. you know, Okay, like a physical exchange of energy. I try to stay away from words like energy and things like that if they don't mean anything. So I always ask to clarify. You oh, know yeah, I mean. yeah. Well, everything's an exchange of energy. Everything we do is an exchange of energy. Right, but it ha- I, just, I just force people to specify that so that when people don't know how something works or don't really get it, they can't go, well, you know, the universe or something like that and then leave it. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Everything needs to be qualified. You're absolutely right. My qualification is the proof and then it's trying to put it into a language that isn't offensive to people, that, that speaks to people. But everything we do is, is based on an exchange of energy. And if we can make that exchange pure, if we can make it from a seminal place, then everything we want will come as a result of that. This is what I'm finding myself. If I can go into a relationship, business or personal or otherwise, and think about how I can serve that person, service being the highest level of man's development, service from a place of, integrity, then everything I want will come as an exponential effect, which is what I'm proving in my own life all the time. 
I care about people. I care about when I'm with somebody. I've trained myself to say subvocally in my internal dialogue, show me how to serve this person. What does this person need? How can I help this person? I do that whoever I meet, whoever I talk to, that's the language I use. And it has a very powerful effect. Some of the business guys I'm working with have won seven and eight, six and seven and eight figure deals just based on that one sub vocalization. They're in a meeting, show me how to serve this person. And sometimes they're about to say to the guy, I'd love to do business with you, but my product wouldn't suit you. But I can put you in touch with somebody that would suit you, but my product isn't quite right for you. I, I don't want that to be true, but it's true, and I can't really serve you. And the person has been so overwhelmed by the honesty that they've given business anyway. Right. They're so used to being sold to that they're like, listen, I can actually trust you. I'm going to figure out a way to work with you because working yeah. with people that are willing to do that is almost a reward in itself. I can say coming from business as well, when people are really honest and people are really forthcoming like that, you just go, man, I need this guy in my team. Yeah. Even if I don't buy his product, you, you know, let me know if you're ever looking for a job. You know, you get that kind of Thing. That's so true, isn't it? That's so true, Jordan. That is absolutely exactly what I'm finding myself. You know, if I can't work with somebody because it doesn't fit, uh, and I tell them straight and I'm congruent and honest, they find things to do. They want it because it's so rare because everybody's trying to sell them. People just aren't congruent. And when I talk about congruence, I'm talking about the fact that they're thinking and they're saying and they're doing are not aligned. They're saying something, they're thinking something else. So I teach people to be more aligned and, and to work from a place of integrity, from a place of virtue. And we're not just saying this at the end of this mission statement. You know, this is how we've got to live. So our exchanges then are pure. The words we use have power. In hermetics, they call it uh, heka. Uh, they say that sound or words, uh, they call it words of power. So when we make a sound, it's not so much about what we say, it's about the alignment and the intention of what we say. So we create with sound. And you can experiment with that. You know, you can talk with people and you can use your sound. I've used my sound to heal people. I've used my sound to align people. I've used my sound quite a lot to protect myself from people. I've used sound to create uh, businesses and to create products. You know, but that's what we do. We go out into the world and we use sound, even if we just go and buy a coffee, we use sound and symbols just, just to buy a coffee or to buy a car. So I want to become, I think, I think in, um, hermetics, they call it heka. They call it magic words or the power of sound. There's also a concept in Japanese Aikido as well, where they have a whole discipline just based on the alignment of sound and getting sound right so that when we talk to people, um, we heal or we inspire or we aspire them with just with sound. So then everybody you meet, you, you're thinking, I'm going to practice this. I'm going to practice aligning this person and inspiring this person with my use of sound. And then I think it was um, Buckminster Fuller, yeah, one of the greatest inventors of his generation. You get a chance to look up Buckminster Fuller. He wrote a book called The Critical Path. He had a nervous breakdown at 40. His daughter died. And, and he had this epiphany, and he said he, he, he suddenly understood the power of sound, the power of words, and he was so awed by it that he never spoke for a year. He said, I'm not going to speak again until I know exactly what I'm talking about. And then he went out up to the age of 40, he'd been largely unsuccessful. He'd not done anything of note. After the age of 40, he said he discovered that the only time he'd been successful was when he'd inadvertently done something for people 
from a place of kindness or a place of love. So he said, all I'm going to do for the rest of my life is do things that serve from that place. And all I'm going to do is do things that serve millions of people. He invented the geodome to become this massive inventor. And he was wined and dined by kings and queens and gurus. He became an amazing man off, just off the basis of how he could serve other people. And he said, I don't want to just do things that serve one or two people. I want to do things that serve millions of people. Um, so that was the premise of his life from the age of 40, and he created massively from that, but with the use of sound. I think they call it kotodamus in Japanese. Kotodamus, again, same same thing, magic sound, the use of sound. So we just become better at doing it. We think if I can align this sound to a place of love or to a place of consciousness or to a place of integrity, for a better, for what for want of a better word, my sound can become very potent. My sound can become very powerful. There are people, there are people I know who can, who can go and use sound and earn £50,000 in an hour because they've managed to hone their sound to such an extent with such essence that lots of people will pay lots of money just to hear that sound because that sound has an effect on them. It aligns them. It inspires them. And of, of course, if I write a book, it's secondary, but if I write a book and you read it, you have to sub-vocalize sound. Right, sure. So one line in a book can be transformational just by you reading it and the sound of the sub-vocalization tipping something in you. So it's, people get caught up in the words and the meaning of words. This is why a lot of people won't look at Bibles and stuff like that. But it's not so much what the words mean. It's the pitch and the tone and the vibration that it creates so vocally that has an effect on us. In the meantime, enjoy the show. That's interesting. I, I would never have thought about that, but but when you look at animals, which humans of course are, they just use sound. They can't vocalize anything, and they still no. communicate. Now granted, their communication debatably not as sophisticated, but it doesn't really matter because we're talking about conscious and subconscious communication. So it doesn't have to, you don't have to be explaining quantum physics with it. Yeah. I don't want anybody to leave my company without my sound making them believe that they can transform their whole life. I don't want anyone to leave my company without believing they can change the world. So my dharma is to be in front of people and work from a place of law and show them the proof, give them the proof and help them to transform even if it's just to transform a mood on that day. And that's what they call delivering the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita is an aligned discourse, an aligned, an alignment of sound that enables people to align from a dark place to an aligned place. So you can inspire people just with the use of sound. So I, I would imagine that's what you already do in your way. You would be delivering, when you talk to guys, you'd be delivering a discourse that aligns them to their potential. And that's why they want to stand in front of you. That's why your organization is so successful. What I found is if I can do that from a genuine place, from a place of virtue and from a place of genuinely wanting to help, um, the, the effect is multiplied, it's profound. So I've learned to uh, dissolve and realign any parts of me that are selfish. And I work from a place of proper selfishness, what Charles Handy calls proper selfishness. Stuff that will serve other people, but the exponential effect 
will, of course, serve me. It's a byproduct, but it will serve me. But at that level, when you're working with pure function, you're working with aligned sound, the service itself is the reward because you experience bliss. For me to experience an aligned sound, working from an aligned place, it has to be processed in me before I deliver it to you. So 100 billion cells are sated with this aligned vibration. So that, that's, that, that's what they say about the Old Testament when they talk about God creating the world in seven days. It's supposed to be a metaphor for man's development over seven stages. And the seventh stage is where he works from a place of love or from selfless service because he recognizes at that level that the service itself is the reward. So then we don't, we're not looking then about what's in it for us. You know, we're looking at when we serve people from an aligned place, we are sated, we are filled. Otherwise, if we're just looking at it, what, what's in it for us, it's like trying to hunt a hawk by aiming your arrow at its shadow. This is a quote from Rumi. We don't try and hunt a hawk uh, by aiming at its shadow. You know, we've got to aim directly at the hawk. And that's what people do. They try to find satisfaction by aiming at the results. But actually, if we just aim for the service, we aim for interaction and this exchange of pure energy, that in itself sates you because you become a conduit for whatever you give out. Equally, if you work from a place of hate or anger or jealousy, 100 billion cells have to process that before you give it to somebody else. Intellectually, it makes no sense. It encourages me just to work from a place of kindness and from a place of service all the time. Sure. I'm, not trying, I'm not trying to be a great bloke. It's profitable for me. Right. It's funny because one of the mottos of the company and of the show for sure is leave everything and everyone better than you found them. And people are like, oh, that's so great. But altruism is dead. And I'm like, altruism, what are you talking about? If you help everyone, you get a bunch of stuff in return. It's not woo woo. It's totally factual. Try helping a bunch of people, see what happens. And that's what we encourage people to do on the show. And they say things like, wow, I thought it was just some sort of spiritual thing. But, you know, I created all these relationships in my business network or I helped a bunch of people do something for free or I went around and gave a bunch of free talks and now I'm drowning in business. And it's like, well, yeah, of course. And even when you can't see what the result might be, when you can't figure out how it will come back to you, you still do it anyway. And then I hate using this word, but the universe will bring it yeah. back to you because you don't need to figure it out. It it just it happens. And this isn't like, imagine the Ferrari in your driveway and it will come. It's like, help a ton of people, people will help you back, most of them won't, oh freaking well, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, this is a precedent. Everything you put out will return. There may be a gap between cause and effect and you may not be able to see the link, but it doesn't matter, it will come back. I trust it. I've done it so many times. I've made thousands of pounds accidentally because of things I did years and years ago that were completely accidental. Someone contacts me, I talk to them on the phone, they're strangers, I talk to them for, I talk to them for half an hour through a depression. Um, you know, some years later they're on a course with me and I'm saying, Oh, your name is familiar. Well you rang me when my mother died and, and you were very kind and and it turns out they're a big businessman. Can I put all my people through yeah? I'll tell you my BAFTA story. Yeah, please do. This is a concrete example and I've got a million of these but I was doing a 32-city tour of Britain, selling one of my books, 64 shops, traveling all around the country. So I was really busy. 
But every place I went, I knew that there would be some kind of divine introduction. In other words, I would be introduced to somebody through intuition, and I wouldn't know who they were or whether they were connected. I call it divine networking or intuitive networking. And everywhere I go, I say to my wife, we're going to meet someone today, and I'm going to look out for that feeling. So I go to this place in Manchester in England, the north of England. I do my talk. I'm looking at all the people. There's lots of heads, lots of faces. In conventional networking terms, there's lots of connected people. But I'm looking for a feeling. Suddenly, this kid walks up to me. His name is Ben Carlish. He works at Waterstones, the bookshop. He's a, a shelf stacker, but he wants to be a writer. Can he meet me? Can he interview me? I feel the connection. There's an intuitive connection. But I'm busy. I'm mad busy. I haven't got five minutes to spare, but I said to him, well, I feel it with this kid. So I meet him the next week. I do an interview with him. He loves it. I don't think any more of it. I don't keep a list. I don't remember who I've helped. One of the things I've learned to do is to forget who I've helped. So I'm not looking for a return. A couple of weeks later, I get a phone call out of the blue from a girl called Natasha Carla. She said, my brother's been very depressed and you spoke to him at Waterstones and I can't tell you how kind that is and how good he feels now. She said, look, I make films. Would you like to meet us? We'd love to do something with you. To cut a long story short, this was 10 years ago. I wrote a film for her. It was BAFTA nominated. Then I wrote another film for her and it won a BAFTA. And Ray Winston starred in it. Now, 10 years later, I've become good friends with Ray Winston. And he's just doing a new feature film that I've done. All comes from this one, I've spent a couple of hours with this lad and there's no physical profit there, but I felt an intuition. And that's still unfolding now, still unfolding. If we work from the right place and we work from a place of genuinely wanting to serve people, you don't always see where it comes back, but it will come back. That's a universal precedent. That's a scientific precedent. You know, what goes out must return. So we just get good at doing that. We make sure that we are aligned and we plant good seeds everywhere we go. We've got opportunities every single day, but we don't keep a list. We don't keep a check. If I do something for a guy, I don't sit there, you know, two years later thinking, well, he's successful now. Why isn't he helping me? I don't look to it from him because it may not come from him. It will come from the optimum place. Karma's like light coming through water. It will calculate the millions of routes to get out and it will find the optimum route. So karma comes back to us through the optimum route, but it's rarely direct. So even re regardless of whether or not it's an intuition thing, I mean, the type of character that you have, you would help people anyway, regardless of any expectation for something back. I expect nothing back. You know, if, if I've gone into a business exchange, you know, I'm, I'm writing for some, something to make payment, then we, we're still working on a vow, and I'm, I'm still only working on projects that I love. I don't do projects unless I can really feel it. I'm not like a writer for hire. I work on projects that I can really feel. And there may be an exchange of money, but when we exchange seminal energy for money, it's a cheap exchange. You know, it's like exchanging an original Picasso for a print. So I never exchange seminal energy just for money. Or I have a lot in the past, but I don't now because it's a poor exchange. What I do is I, I make sure that the exchange I'm making comes from a place of, love like i want to write this project like the film for instance that i've just done the pyramid text it's just purely about love i love the story i love the actor i love the directors we made a beautiful film it's going to be a beautiful play uh, it's going to be a stage play as well everything about that it involves money 
but the money's not wasn't the motivator. The motivator was that it came from the right place, and then the exponential effect of that was obviously the money comes. But the exchange of seminal energy for money is a poor exchange. So it's about finding the connections and recognizing that money is a secondary energy, and we can use money to facilitate things and to build infrastructure. But in and of itself, it isn't the most powerful energy, like I said. So it's for me, it's about looking. It's about looking for: Do I love this project? Do I want to work with this person? Can I serve this person? You can use money to trick other people into using seminal energy for for something that you need. Well, the internet's <laughs> full of that. Yes. The internet is full of. Uh, I call them internet sirens. Our essence is precious. Um, advertisers and pornography sites, not just sexual, but gossip sites of pornography. Um, and violent sites of pornography. They're all just looking to trip your seminal energy from you. You can go on the internet, um, I hope this isn't too visceral, but you can go on the internet and watch sexual porn and you can lose a whole week's worth of seminal energy into a piece of tissue. I was so afraid to ask what seminal energy was and I was right. I, it's exactly <laughs> what I thought it was. Damn it. So the, uh, the seminal energy was, it was really the soul. It's what we would class as the soul. But it works through our imagination. It works through, obviously, through the semen as well. If we are able to transmute that seminal energy, the semen energy, into a beautiful project, you can create amazing things with that. But if we just use it sexually, it's mostly just wasted unless we're going to create something great with it. So you just recognize that people are always trying to trick their energy from you, and we're always trying to trick it from them because that's the societal game. When you wake up, in spiritual terms, they call it waking up. In other words, when you have the birth of consciousness, when you get a wider awareness, you suddenly see the games and you just choose not to play it. And you start looking for people who you can have pure exchanges of energy with. And then you just want to sit and talk all night and you start finding like-minded people. But because people are afraid and because people think that money is powerful and they think that material things are powerful, and they fall into the game. But material things and money are not powerful. The power, the real energy, the seminal energy, what they call the talents in the New Testament, is in us, it's ours. And people are always trying to strip it away. Normally it's diluted into lots of addictions. It's diluted into lots of different internal personalities. Uh, So our job is to try and find an absolute, an authentic self, a soul self, and then, then go out and just create from one place. And then we use our seminal energy in, in a very beautiful, powerful, uh, anabolic way. We don't destroy with it. We just create with it. And we create things that go on to create as well. I, I write a book. It goes out. And that book goes on to create. In my absence, my book becomes an apostle in 21 languages. Sure. At the moment, I've got about 5 million versions of me in the world that I've created from my seminal energy that are working for me as we speak. They're out there. So I create things that have longevity, that have life. With your seminal energy. So legacy is greater than currency, another AOC Yeah, motto. absolutely. When I'm dead, those things will still be out there working. So my job is to add to the Akashic record. Uh, my job is to add to the collective knowledge of you know humankind and put out great stories and great parables i mean we you know we're the new apostles we're giving people new parables and new metaphors we're helping them to create better realities and of course we need to be the proof of that and we need to be aligned we need to be congruent 
we need to be working from a place of love. And that sounds fancy, but really it's just saying, do you love doing it? You know, I love writing. I'm going to write whether I'm being paid or not because I love it. It's my dharma. I'm going to tell stories whether I'm paid or not. Some of the people I've had on this show, you have to love what you do in order just to suffer through it. But, <laughs> <laughs> no, present company excluded, of course. Uh, thank you. Um, I think this is a great place to wrap, but I do have just one last question very briefly. I'm curious, and, and this might just be more of a curiosity, but you were abused by somebody that was close to you that was a teacher in your community. Was that person around for later parts of your life? Were they around? Yeah, I was able to meet him and stand in front of him, and, and I told him I forgave him, and I completely, completely destroyed him. I didn't intend to destroy him, but there's a great, uh, I wrote a film about it called Romans 12.20, and Romans 12.20 says, Revenge is mine, said the Lord, and I shall repay. If thine enemy hungers, feed him, if he thirst, give him drink, for in so doing, thou shalt heap fires of coal on his head. Now, it sounds religious, but what it's really saying is that there is a universal energy that will take care of all of these things. What we have to do if someone has abused us is we have to recognize that that abuse is a possession. We, they literally possess a part of our perception and our cognition. When we forgive them, we cleanse that, we exercise them. So forgiveness is exorcism. And I did this forgiveness from a place of power. I was physically powerful. I was in a physically powerful place and I forgave him. And I wrote a film about it. The day the, the film script was finished, this man went to London and hung himself and killed himself. Oh, wow. How did you feel after you heard that? Uh, just to be honest, I felt sad. I felt really sad because despite what he did, there was goodness in him somewhere. He was still, there was still something I loved about him, something great. He was obviously a, a damaged man. And what he did was, you know, was abhorrent. But I just felt compassion because it was a life wasted. It was a whole incarnation wasted. I was determined to make something great from that. So I wrote a stage play about it. I wrote um, a short film about it that went all around the world. We're just doing a feature film at the moment called Romans about it. Um, so I'm determined to take that story and talk about the metaphysical power, the literal metaphysical power of forgiveness. Um, that will be part of you know, what I'm going to put out into the world and try and encourage other people to change their perception of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not letting people off. Forgiveness is exercising them. And then we have to have faith that some law will take care of it and underline it. And that's what happened when this guy killed himself. It just said to me, if you sit by the riverbank for long enough, you watch the bodies of all your enemies float by. And that's been very true for me. Wow, that was not what I expected to hear. But thank you very much, man. I really appreciate this. And the audience says as well, a lot of people are going to be wondering why we did so much talk about spirituality and topics I never touch on and why I let you get away with so many drops of the word energy, but <laughs> yeah. it's different, you know, because it depends on if it's qualified, if it means something in context. I just want to sort of nip that in the bud before I get 10,000 emails. Yeah, well, um, listen, let me let me just explain for a go what, what I'm deeply religious, but religious religion to me just means to be aligned. Religion comes from the old Greek word religari or religio. It means to realign or to reconnect. So it's basically saying religion is about reconnecting to our own source, whatever that is. So we connect to an infinite supply of energy. And this energy is very real. It, you know, people have got the wrong idea about what it is. We're exchanging energy now. The job is just to get better at exchanging it and make the exchanges pure. So people get mixed up between religion and dogma. I'm not dogmatic. 
I can align to my source through a tree. You know, I can rely on through everything. Everything is spiritual to me. Uh, dogma is a completely different thing. People mistake religion for terrorism. Religion is not terrorism. Terrorist is a terrorist. No matter what name he calls it, it's a terrorist. There's a big difference. So for me, religion is about me being aligned to my best potential and working from a place of love and wanting to go out in the world and create amazing things. So we've just had an hour of exchanging energy on a pure level. There, I don't know whether there's a, a more acceptable word for it, but I qualify that by, you know, by the way I live and by what's in my in my life. So religion can be good, it can be bad. Hitler was religious. He was just aligned to hate. He was using the same energy as I would use. He's just bringing it to a very damaged perception, very damaged cognition. I'm bringing it to a very pure and cleansed cognition. So we're all using energy all the time. If we want to serve people from the right place, then we are religious. It just means to be aligned. So I absolutely am religious, but I'm absolutely not dogmatic. But because I've got that, Jordan, it means I can access all of those books, all of the, the philosophy of Krishna, the philosophy of Muhammad, the philosophy of the Guru Garansa, the philosophy of Lao Tzu, the philosophy of Jesus Christ, the philosophy of Moses. I mean, amazing, amazing philosophy. If I'm offended by the word religion, I automatically close the access to all of that learning. I mean, I've read all those books. I read 35,000 verses from the Hindu texts, which go back 6,000 years. They talk about sex, they talk about money, they talk about power. I took two weeks off work just to read it. It's one of the most exciting experiences in my life. But if I was caught up with the words and got too caught up with the words, I would never have accessed that. And I, I got loads from that. I got massive amounts from it. Well, thank you very much for your time. Much appreciated. A lot of wisdom here. Obviously, you've been through some serious trial by fire. Yeah, thank you, Jordan, for the platform as well. I appreciate it. You're welcome, man. A lot of people are going to resonate with this. I get emails all the time from people who are you know, fresh out of prison or went through a really bad business situation or serious life trauma, and uh, this is the type of stuff that tends to speak to them as well. Thanks, Jordan. Interesting show. Very heavy, like I said. So hopefully you guys were in the mood for that. If not, tough. You already listened to it. Cutting negative people out of your life and how to do it. Always a tricky topic. I think we hinted on some good points here that uh, you move on and they either come with you or don't. Fear, depression, and violence, they do tend to go together, especially in Jeff's case. Really interesting backstory. And I guess we all know what seminal energy is now. And so thanks for that transforming yourself through fear and service. Interesting trial by fire and uh, something that definitely kind of involves a rite of passage as a man, I think, in a lot of ways. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. And of course, show feedback and guest suggestions. The show's a fanarchy. It's run by you. And we rely on you to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone is a good fit for the show, Jeff himself was a suggestion as well. Let me know. Jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Jeff on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes, of course. And bootcamp details theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. And if you're listening, but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher, go ahead and do that now. Getting this stuff delivered while you sleep is a great way to make sure you don't miss anything. Of course, we also have our iPhone and Android apps, both available for free as well. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. And please tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week. Go out there and get social and leave everything and every one better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. 
Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 